0: We are going to be in Genesis—not Genesis. Acts chapter ten. If you want to open your Bibles there, in Acts chapter ten, we're continuing the series of conversational Christianity, specifically the cues from the creators of conversational Christianity, specifically dealing with those individuals of the New Testament that uh, were were left as patterns to you and I as to how we can share our faith, etc. And uh, last time we looked in in, in uh, I can't get my book straight this morning. We looked in the book of Acts chapter 8, I believe it was, yeah, and uh, we, uh, no, no, it is in 9, we're in 9, because we did 8 with uh, Philip and the eunuch, you might recall, then we did 9 with Saul, and more specifically Ananias and his difficult assignment, and uh, thus far the words, the key words for our conversational Christianity that I've had so far, a woman at the well, be aware. Woman uh, at the well, make sure you initiate conversations. Woman at the well, make sure that your conversations are full of hope. And then uh, woman at the well, they w- looking for results. Remember specifically, she goes back to town and uh, and Jesus says this to his disciples, look, the field is white unto harvest. We need to be ready for the results. Then we, we move from there to another conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus and the key word there was Prepare that uh, we need to be individuals who are prepared for the conversation, anticipate certain things in the conversation as Jesus did. Then in Acts chapter 8, we dealt with the eunuch. The word was follow. Make sure that uh, we are people who are willing to even follow the lead of those we're talking to, if necessary. The eunuch's the one who actually suggested baptism. Uh, Here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And then Ananias And his difficult conversation with Saul, who will become Paul, key word there was confidence. This morning, as we deal with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the key word is going to be assumptions. We need to be careful about making assumptions when we have conversations with individuals. And I'll have three points, as I typically do, but uh, if you open your Bibles now, I'm not going to read the entire text. That would take a long time for us to do that. And I really want to draw more application than just read verbatim what's happening here. But my first point is actually going to be taken from verses 9 all the way down through verse 16. And the first point is that we need to be careful that we do not assume the unworthiness of the person we're having a conversation with. I don't know why we tend to do this, and I know that we have a, a, a motorcycle enthusiast in the room, and so when I was putting this uh, lesson together, I was mindful of him, but uh, I've got another very good friend who, was, who visited here. In fact, uh, these two individuals have talked together about, uh, there's this special camaraderie that people who, drive, who ride motorcycles, they just have this. I've never been in that group, but I have a great respect for them and appreciate them. But there's also another side of those who ride motorcycles, and that is sometimes they, they can be rather intimidating. Uh, we've seen individuals in their black vests and whatever it may be, and maybe even seen a biker gang that uh, was parked at a particular place, and we thought to ourselves, oh dear, we don't want to stop there because who knows what's going to happen, and etc. Et and we make these leaps in judgment because they're dressed a certain way, because they ride a certain vehicle, because, 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 we make these leaps that they have to be a certain type of person, which is really unfortunate because so many that uh, are invested in various types of lifestyles uh, are not necessarily representing an evil setting. I'll use a personal since I'm talking about this particular genre. A very dear friend of mine named Don. Uh, who actually is a full-time minister in Little Rock right now. Uh, good, good guy. Love him with all of my heart. Been like a older brother to me. But he grew up, his early years, he was in a biker gang, a legitimate biker gang that uh, did a lot of legitimate bad things. And um, I find it interesting that this individual, who still loves to ride his motorcycles and things of like that, this individual has gone through such an interesting transition in life. He went from being what would have been a classic hippie back in the day to a phenomenal minister of the gospel who spent many of his years, raised most of his children in the foreign field of the Philippines as a missionary, just a phenomenal guy. He and his wife, both. If you had, however, met my friend Don and his wife, Deanne, back in the day, which I did, you would have probably said, oh, dear. You might have even said, I'm not sure they're worthy of the message of the gospel, But I am so thankful that someone along the way recognized, looked beyond and was able to actually invest in his life because there's no telling how many people, especially in the Philippines, would have never known the gospel of Christ had it not been for my friends, Don and Deanne, who went there, even though their life started in a place where some of us might have been intimidated by and said, oh, dear. We've all done it, got on a bus, maybe sat down beside somebody at at a waiting room in a a hospital or whatever, a crowded place. And we thought to ourselves, I'm not sure that I I would want to trust that person. And uh, maybe uh, you needed to go to the restroom, but they got up first and they went to the restroom and you said to yourself, I'll just wait till they come out. And we made those assumptions about people. We really need to be careful with the assumptions we make with regards to the conversation of Jesus. Jesus. What takes place in Acts chapter 10 is a classic example of a man who made an assumption based upon his own Jewish elitism. If you'll read verses 9 through 16, and I'm not going to take the time to do it, but if you would read that particular passage, you find that Peter's going to have the vision. We're all familiar with it, and that's why I'm not going to take the time to read it. Peter's going to have the vision as he's up on the rooftop, and and this, this declaration is going to be made. Kill and eat, and Peter's going to say, I'm not doing that. I haven't eaten that kind of thing my entire life because I'm a Jew. I don't do that. And this vision is going to happen or the sheet is going to be repeatedly until Peter is left bum fuzzled as to what in the world. Here all of a sudden I'm asked to do something that's way outside my comfort zone. And Peter is going to, at that particular point, even to the Lord who's presenting the message, he's going to say, not so. I'm not doing that one. I'm not going down that road. Because as we know, knowing the rest of the story, this is all a setup for what's about to happen with the Gentile Cornelius. God knows many things, but two things are very important that we understand here. Number one, Peter is at that particular time. Peter is one of the leading voices of the church. He's the one who's going to preach the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, etc. And so here's an individual who has credibility with the church. That's why it's Peter, not Paul or Saul, who's going to be selected for this particular job, I'm convinced. Peter, having that kind of level of credibility, is the one who God is targeting. You're the man who is going to bridge this gap between two vast, separated worlds the Jewish world and the Gentile world. And Peter, you're going to be the guy. And this is going to be a problem that's going to stick around with Peter for years to come. Remember, Paul later on is going to have to confront him to his face because he's doing the same thing. He's giving preference to the Jew over the Gentile, etc. But Peter's going to be chosen by God to make this happen. And then secondarily, you're going to see that in this particular text that what's going to happen is it's not just Peter... But we're going to see that God himself is going to validate what Peter's doing by the Holy Spirit. Hold that thought, because that's very important. And it's an assumption that too many in the religious world take and run in a a direction that's not appropriate. But hold that thought. So two things happen here. Peter is selected because he's the primary voice of the church at that particular time. And secondarily, the Holy Spirit is going to validate Peter going into the Gentiles. In a moment, we'll see that with the speaking in tongues. But my first point is this. We need to be careful not to assume someone's unworthiness. Now let me, if you'll allow for a second, to draw this even further. Because I have been guilty of this particular one. I'm a big mouth, as you know, and I I don't meet a stranger. And I I talked about anybody I I, I can on the street. And I love to do that. I don't have a problem with that. But there have been times that I have actually been introduced to people... And over a series of conversations, I have decided they're not worthy. And I've cut them off and I've walked away and I've said, I'm not interested no more because it's pretty clear to me that your heart's not where it needs to be. You see, the difference between me and Jesus is I can't read the heart and you can't either. And we need to be careful when we dismiss an individual as being unworthy, as being outside the realm of possibilities of me ever getting to them. Sometimes we might need to back off. We might need to give it time. We might probably, we do need to spend more time in prayer and ask God to open that door because oftentimes I've found in those situations, I've been pushing a door that God isn't ready to open, but we need to be careful not to cut people off, give them time, perhaps separate yourself from them for a while so that they can learn their lessons that they need to learn through God's inspiration. But be an individual who's willing to re-engage when that opportunity comes. Second point that I see as you continue to read is that you're going to see as you start at verse 30 that Cornelius is going to offer up why he has invited Peter to his home. I do want to begin reading this because this is less familiar material to us. In verse 30 it says, And Cornelius said four days ago, About this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornish, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, etc. We need to remember that this is a sinner offering a prayer that is heard by God. I've often heard it said, and you have too, that God doesn't hear the, the prayers of sinners. That's just simply not true. That statement, which is in the Bible, was not written or not stated by an inspired individual. That's just a statement that somebody offers up as a potential fact that is not confirmed in that passage, by the way. God does hear the prayers of sinners. He does hear them because I can prove it here in Acts chapter 10. This is not just a sinner. This is a Gentile. And God heard his prayer. And God miraculously answers his prayer. But as you move on down to verse 34, you find a rather interesting summary, if you will, that Peter gives to this Gentile with regards to the most essential facts a person will ever hear. So Peter opened his mouth, then he said, verse 30, 34, Truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation of anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he both did in in country. Uh, He did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through their name, through his name, excuse me. The second thing I would share with you here is that we need to be careful not to assume too much knowledge on the part of those who are listening. I recognize that that paragraph is pretty much a summary of the life of Christ, and it doesn't give a lot of the details. But what he does say in that paragraph is essential to the faith of the listener. He's going to hit the high points. Notice that he doesn't just limit his discussion to the New Testament. He's also going to reference the prophets of old and how that they prophesied about this fellow whose name is Jesus. And you heard about Jesus. You heard how that he was crucified, hung on the cross. You heard how that we are people who now are called with the, 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 the assignment to make sure that we present the message of Christ to the world. You see how Peter is going to summarize, if you will, not just the life of Christ but the assignment that he has. I think that that's a very very big application to you and I in our conversations because I have been often at fault with starting in a place that the person was not ready to get to yet. Unfortunately, in our in our country that was founded upon godly principles, we have now raised a generation of individuals who either reject God out of rebellion or simply have not been trained to understand who God is. And I've discovered that in many of my conversations out in the world that you cannot start with, but the Bible says this. You have to start with, why would the Bible even be true? you got to back up to a point of evidences, if you will, Romans chapter 1. Share with individuals, especially the younger generation, why it's pretty obvious there is a God, that there is a power beyond us. Paul uses the argument in Romans chapter 1 of looking at nature. And he basically says we are without excuse because even the man who never has read a word of scripture, who lives in the most pagan culture on the planet, can see a tree or the grass that grows, the flowers that come and they can know there is not a man or woman on the planet who is with excuse. Everyone's without excuse because God points to himself even through nature. But my point is that sometimes even in America, in this land that is supposedly the flagship of morality in the world, we find that a vast majority of the young people today And some older folks, but a vast majority of young people today either choose not to believe in God or have never been taught about God and have no reason to really put faith in it because they have never been told or given or asked to look at the evidence that's around about them. My second point is that you need to be careful about assuming too much about the person you're talking with. Peter didn't. Now you read the story and you find out Cornelius is a righteous man. How did he even know to pray to God, to give alms? This is a guy who's probably well-trained in Judaism. And I want you to see that Peter does not go in there assuming that he understands that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Judeo process, bringing the Christ to bear. He doesn't. I'm going to tell you about Jesus, and he takes the time to do so. You could flip back a chapter or two. I guess it's two chapters, and you could go to the, the story of Philip and the eunuch, and don't you have the same thing? We don't know a lot about what Philip said to him, but we do know this. He preached unto him, Jesus, that was going to get covered. That one's going to happen. And that's why I think it's important that we recognize that in our conversations with people, you got to go slow. And sometimes you can't cover everything. I get that. You can overwhelm a person easily, but surely in the course of the conversation, the name of Jesus can be used at some point. Surely. Drawing attention, never assume that the person has the knowledge, the full knowledge, and that they're just rebelling against it. What I have decided, I have found in my course of conversation with people is that most folks are not necessarily rebelling is they're just sometimes not seeing. They're too busy. They're pushed in too many directions at once and they're just not recognizing the message. Now, I I rushed through that because I want to get to point number three, because I think this is maybe as big a point as as we can make for our our modern conversations. And that is number one, or excuse me, number three, don't assume salvation. We live in a world that because of our, uh, I don't know, spinelessness, uh, to, to put it bluntly, but this idea of just accept everyone. Uh, the, the, the Oprah approach to salvation, everybody's going to heaven by a different route, you know? And so we just ought to, you know, just accept. And if we just, you know, and so it doesn't really matter where you go to church. It's just that you're going to church, you know, and those kind of assumptions, all of which are covered in Matthew seven, 21 through 23, that talks about good people who evidently went to church. If you will, uh, these are folks who, who did good stuff. And yet at the end, verse 23, depart from me. I never knew you, you who work lawlessness, you evil individuals. It's as my cousin put up this this morning, as I was making a post on social media, she put up, it's probably one of the most scariest passages in all the Bible, Matthew seven, that there can be good people who know they're going to heaven who don't end up being there. The key of course is verse 21, where it says they didn't do the will of the father. They're so emphasizing the things of mankind, but my church believes this. My pastor said that, which doesn't matter. Matthew 7, 21, what does God say? That at the end of the day is what's most important. And so as you come to this final section, I want you to see something very, very important in verses 41 through 48, excuse me, 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And you'll go on to read talks about them speaking in tongues, etc. We're familiar with this as well. But there are three assumptions that are made from this passage that are damnable assumptions that have to be exposed. And you and I in our conversations need to be careful with our friends that we not go off down these paths of assumptions. Number one, it is a damnable conclusion to assume that just because you are employed by the Holy Spirit that you are also saved by the Holy Spirit. Pharaoh received dreams inspired by God. Yet Pharaoh was a pagan who I do not expect to see in heaven one day. Balaam's donkey was inspired by God To speak to his master. But I don't expect to see the donkey in heaven one day. The witch of Endor. Lived her life in opposition to the divine purity. Yet was inspired by God. To conjure up Saul. Excuse me Samuel so that Saul could have a conversation with him. And I don't expect to see the witch in heaven. All I'm saying is that it is possible because God is omnipotent. God can use you in an inspired way without you being saved. He's done it many times throughout history. Nebuchadnezzar would uh, graze like an ox out on the field. You might recall that. I think there is a chance we'll see him in heaven because it does sound like towards the end of his life he did repent. But my point is that just because God uses you, It doesn't necessarily mean that you are saved, which is the assumption that everybody makes about Cornelius. Cornelius is saved without being baptized before he's baptized because he can speak in tongues before he's ever immersed. God allowed a donkey to speak in tongues. It was never immersed. We've got to be careful about damnable assumptions because the person sitting across from me seems to be dressed rather nicely. And can quote passages of scripture straight out of the King James version. We just assume they have to be somebody on their way to heaven. Not necessarily, my friends. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. These folks were casting out demons, prophesying in God's name. And they're not going to be there. We've got to be careful about assumptions. The second thing from this passage that's very important for you to avoid is assuming that because they could speak in tongues that this eliminated their need for circumcision of the heart. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's a powerful passage about baptism that says it's in baptism that Jesus actually removes your sin. That's what circumcision is. Circumcision is a removal, specifically fleshly. If you're going to do a fleshly circumcision, it's a removal of the flesh. But in Colossians chapter 2, it's a removal of the sinful nature. And it says in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus, it is by his very hands in baptism that he removes the sin from us. Now let's pedal back to, to Cornelius. If Cornelius is saved before he's baptized, then what good is the circumcision of Christ in baptism? And then thirdly, And maybe most powerful of all for me in this passage is if you assume that Cornelius is saved without being baptized, that it was just an his baptism later on was just an outward sign of an inward grace. I'm going to ask you why in the world, how could that outward sign top the Holy Spirit using them to speak in tongues? It's like anticlimactic. Which, by the way, is exactly what the denominational world wants you to think with regards to baptism. It's a post-salvation trophy moment. You're not saved in baptism. You're saved before baptism. And baptism is just a way to show the world that you've been saved. And yet you read this passage and it's rather interesting and clear that Peter doesn't just stop with the assumption, Oh, you can speak in tongues. you got to be saved. Let's move on. Why does Peter say, can anybody withhold baptism? Because he's telling them that it's a necessary step for you to go through the process of the circumcision by the hands of Jesus in order for your salvation to be secure. Baptism is not a trophy moment. Baptism is the very moment that Jesus removes the sin from your being. And we must not assume any different as by far the majority of those who call themselves Christians today do. Now, I want to end with this idea. Jesus says, few there be that find it. And then in Matthew 7, that there will be individuals in the last day who will say, but Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and prophesy and do all these marvelous things in your name? And they'll be rejected. And in those two passages, Jesus gives us a rather sobering reality. Number one, there ain't many going. Forgive my English, but that's just the way Jesus puts it. Few, he said it, not me, few there be that find it. And of those few that we assume are going to go, there are the Matthew 7 folks. They got to be going. They've prophesied, they've cast out demons, they've done marvelous works. In His name, they got to be going. And they're not. My point is, there are fewer than we think. And we got to stop assuming that just because somebody seems to have some kind of a religiosity about them, that they're a shoe in for heaven. The only ones going are those who do, Matthew 7, 21, the will of the Father. And the only way that you can know the will of the Father is stop assuming and allow him to define. And when you find the equation play out before you in Acts chapter 10, it becomes quite clear. Cornelius, he had a vision by God, from God and he wasn't saved. He had the message spoken to him by God's man, and he wasn't saved. He spoke in tongues, and he wasn't saved. If he were, Peter would not have said, why would anybody withhold baptism? Peter recognized that in the moment that Cornelius surrendered to Christ in baptism, he was going to become a new creature. Romans 6. Only in that moment would he be buried with Christ, and only in that moment, verse 4, Romans 6, would he rise to walk in newness of life. Had it not been so, Peter would never have pushed for baptism. He would have said, Listen, you've had two miraculous experiences. Surely you're saved. Let's just leave it at that. But he didn't. Cornelius was baptized for the forgiveness of sins. We've got to stop assuming.